Welcome to Covenant Conversations, episode number 14. Today I, your host Shweta Rao, have the pleasure of speaking to a founding principal of Ardent Financial, an independent securities dealer recently created to address an underserved secondary credit market. Our guest has over 20 years of investing and trading experience in the global financial markets, holding senior leadership roles at an investment bank as well as an investment fund. Today, we will speak about why and how covenants matter in the secondary and distressed world. Welcome, Tim Alexander. Hi, Tim. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. How are you? Great. So pleased to have you today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Let's start with the big picture and talk about the state of the secondary credit markets, especially in the wake of COVID-19. Yeah, it, it, look, we, we've seen, you know, I think if you were, if, if your vantage point was in early March, there was a question as to whether or not globally we would see a second depression. Um, and I think that was a real possibility before uh, coordinated central bank action took place. Uh, and I wasn't, and, and I think most investors weren't, were unsure as to how bad that could, that could actually get. Um, I think post Fed Reserve getting involved post ECB while well, getting involved and then realizing it wasn't involved enough and sort of re- recalibrating itself, um, we, we've seen a pretty strong rally in credit. Um, you could argue, and, and this is a separate conversation, you could argue, have we gone too far specifically in, in um, some cyclical sectors or those that are uh, very much exposed to COVID-19 and its fallout? Um, and I think the answer in many cases is depends on who you are. Um, if you are bondholders, you're, you're happy that the market's rallied back. If you are a distressed investor um, and you bought some, uh, you're pretty happy. But if, if you didn't, then you're not. Um, and if you're a financial sponsor, you're happy because if markets are functioning and open, um, then you can continue um, your, your buyout activities. Uh, I think, though, w- what this time of volatility uh, has has done is it, it should have brought people closer to uh, the documentation that they that underlies what they actually own, uh, and I think even if you're a par investor all the way down to a distressed investor, um, documentation you know has always mattered, and I think it matters even more now given the fact that we've got uh, se- severe decrease in cash flow in certain companies uh, and, and across certain sectors, uh, and I think. You know, bondholders will be getting together more often um, to talk about what they can do to protect their rights. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, documentation is becoming very important. Um, we did recently see in Europe the case of Olympic Entertainment, which has transferred some of its assets, its bondholders, its crown jewel assets, out to their shareholders. So, you know, that that is a possible fight brewing in um, the in, in in the European markets. When you do your analysis before you uh, invest in a credit, what do you look at and sort of what specific concerns in the covenants do you um, scour and think about? Sure. Um, after we consider the fundamentals behind a business, its sector um, and, and where it sits within it, um, we then go to the documentation because I think without a thorough legal review of what governs our rights, um, it, it doesn't make sense to be involved in something uh, in a situation, particularly that's uh, a company that's in distress or a sector that is in distress. 
Uh, and I think that the only thing that really protects investors um, on the public side is, is that indenture, um, forgetting uh, the value of the underlying uh, asset or company. I think the first thing we start with clearly is the is the indenture because that's effectively your your first stop. Um, if you perform, and we did this recently, uh, as a matter of fact, it was in third quarter of last year. I I spent some time um, looking at and and doing a comparison of document high yield bond documentation documentation here in Europe uh, in two thousand and three. <laughs> Difficult to get my hands on some of those documents, as you can yeah. imagine. Um, yeah. The two thousand seven and eight vintage. And then 2019 mm -hmm. vintage, and this was again third quarter of last year. And what I saw was um, a a long, slow decline in protections uh, for bondholders. I would characterize the 2003 documentation, and remember also in 2003 the high yield market here was much smaller than it is today. If today it's 300 billion, back then it was 50 billion, um, and it was really the leverage finance market here was was governed by bank loans and banks, um, which has again changed uh, in in 2020. Um, but first and foremost, guarantors and and security. Um, if you don't have it, either of those things, then you don't have a secured note. Um, the problem is though today it seems that you have the illusion of security and guarantee, uh, when in actuality those things can be taken away from you. You just mentioned in Olympic Entertainment, which I, I suppose is the is the J. Crew trapdoor um, that some owners or sponsors are, are utilizing today in the documentation. But the fact of the matter is that previously, non-guarantor subs um, were really not mentioned very much, um, where material subsidiaries were really providing guarantees and representing uh, a substantial portion of your of your total assets, revenues, EBITDA, um, and parent guarantees were, were pretty typical years ago. They are not so typical uh, these things uh, are not so typical today. Security packages have changed quite a bit. Um, today, I would characterize it as little or, or certainly less, much less um, asset level security, um, share pledges that don't get you very far in restructuring, et cetera. So if you put those two things together, your quote unquote senior secured notes are less secured um, than they look uh, on the face of it. Uh, and unlike in the loan market where you have maintenance covenants, we have incurrence covenants on the public side. So what are we talking about? Uh, negative covenants and negative pledges, um, which is what you really want to dig through uh, these days, limitations on indebtedness, limitations on liens, uh, and the ever important limitation on uh, restricted payments. Um, and as we're seeing today, um, asset transfers and or um, limits on affiliate transactions. And, and why do these things matter? Well. Um, linkages need to be carefully uh, assessed um, in these things. And what do I mean by linkages? Well, if you're not allowed to sell an asset, perhaps you can find other disposal language that's buried in the indenture that allows you to do so. Um, if you cannot, um, if, if a bondholder or bondholder group does not have asset level security, um, like you're talking about uh, today, um, uh, in the example that you mentioned, um, if a sponsor can transfer that asset um, that the bondholder may or may not have security over, but if it doesn't have clear security over it, um, then it can be transferred out. And, and you can argue all day long that you've just transferred value away from me. But the problem is if it's outside the restricted group, 
I never really had a claim on it in the first place, apart from in an insolvency, and I'll take my chances on whether or not I can get it. Um, and, and and this is this is where you know very clever legal language has been thrown into these documentation uh, or this documentation, um, and um, the linkage between how these things work, um, not in a vacuum, but certainly how they work together is what's determining how aggressive actions have been taken by companies and sponsors in order to take value away from secured creditors. Um, is it fair? That's not, it, that doesn't even matter. Um, the fact of the matter is that if you've lent money or you've bought a bond, you better know what you're buying. Um, you can sue, you can try to sue, um, but your chances of, of success will vary depending upon the jurisdiction in Europe and, and especially uh, depending upon the underlying documentation and what it says. Um, what bondholders typically have seen recently um, is that they're having a very hard time uh, proving a case of asset stripping um, if the asset in question was never theirs to begin with. Um, and, and that's really what matters, right? If, if you know, your claim is only as good as the underlying doc is, is the punchline here. And so when you're digging through these indentures, you know, a full legal analysis needs to be done. And, uh, uh, you know, whether you can do that in, in your firm or if you hire an external uh, counsel to do so for you, um, that's what you need to understand. Because a high yield bond trading at 50 cents, senior secured uh, basis, not much ahead of you, uh, maybe it can be layered, maybe it can't be, but at least you understand it. It may not be so cheap at 50 um, if you don't have anything but an unsecured claim in, in an administration or a bankruptcy filing. That's exactly right. I'm, I you know, particularly note the aspect you mentioned about all the interlinkages between the documents and how all the provisions need to be read together uh, and to completely understand the impact of what those provisions would be. And I'll give you the example of J.Crew Trapdoor, which you mentioned. Um, when J.Crew actually used its trapdoor to siphon off uh, its IP assets to an unrestricted sub, there was an outcry in the market. And then we did look at loans and bonds and that did that specific language did get taken out. But the fact of the matter is today, in other ways, the documents have been weakened that you can effect the same transaction without actually having that specific loophole. So that, That's right. It just takes extra steps to yes. do so. Instead of just lifting an asset and moving it out, it's, well, do I have a permanent disposals basket that I can use? Or um, is there another way I can do it? And then if I do it, how do I transfer those shares? And, and that's the harder part. Right. If if the doc is weak enough, or the language is clever enough, or or the language, it, it's never not there, quote unquote. It's always there, um, but it just depends on how creative uh, the lawyer was acting on behalf of the banks and the sponsor uh, in order to get this uh, in order to get this language in. And you know, it, when a par investor is looking at these, your your the first thing in your mind is not oh the company is going to um, uh, start to underperform, and therefore the sponsor is going to do something nefarious against me. That That's not the first thing on your mind. Um, I'm wondering going forward if it maybe should be the first thing on the mind of high-yield investors who are buying uh, par bonds because you know it feels to me like with greater protection, although I don't see that happening anytime soon, um, I think they may be in a better position. However, if they are, does that mean um, that they'll be getting compensated less uh, as far as uh, current income and, and coupon goes uh, on on that related bond, and I think the answer is, you know, we don't know.
right? We don't know what's going to happen in the future. You, you, you only know what, what you've got today and you only know the documentation um, as, as it sits in front of you uh, today. Uh, and, exactly. and, you know, it, it, it makes it very difficult. Yes. I mean, I'd like to come back to the question of compensation because that's one question I've always had. But before we do that, um, while we're still on the topic of the documentation and the risks, well, I'll say hidden in there in some respects, what are your views on calculation flexibility? So, you know, on the face of it, your, your basket might look this big, you know, greater of percent of um, fixed amount and X percent of EBITDA. But then if you can plump up the EBITDA to a very nice number, your basket suddenly magically becomes a lot bigger. And especially given, you know, COVID-19 addbacks to EBITDA that have now been floating around and created some amount of consternation amongst investors. What, what are your views on calculation flexibility and how as an investor are you expected to actually be able to calculate the amount of capacity to take a certain action, which includes incurring priming debt or indeed transferring assets away by using your investments or RP capacity um, without actually having the full information you need to be able to make those calculations. Well, that's the, that's the thing. If you don't have the full information, nor can you receive the full information, how can you do it? Uh, I think and, and that's not there. There is no answer to that unless sponsors want to become more forthcoming about what they're telling bondholders. And I think the answer is probably they don't, um, because they've not been forced to. But I think you know. I, I, again, your first stop is the documentation. So you're, you're flipping to your definitions and starting to look at how is EBITDA defined? How is every component of EBITDA defined, or is it is it not defined? Um, and then, therefore, can I find each of those components publicly? In other words, through the reporting that I'm provided by the company, um, mm -hmm. and and then and, and look, I, and let me just be clear. I, I'm not saying companies are specifically doing this on purpose to confuse bondholders or to withhold information. It, it just these are the way documents are written today. That's that's all I'm saying. Uh, it has nothing to do with with uh, you know what action uh, a sponsor or company is willing or or uh, looking to take in the future. Um, but the fact of the matter is, if if I can't calculate it, it's very difficult. Um, to to know what it is, it, you know, the joke, and I, I guess in the loan market would be these these addbacks um, that you're seeing that are effectively just creating an artificial deflation um, of leverage in the loan mm -hmm. market, and also that's combined with an associated decrease um, in cash flow, which you know for loan investors is is obviously not great. Uh, but I think also you're seeing something similar. And remember, you've had a convergence between loan docs and bond indentures here in Europe uh, exactly. for, the, for the last, what, five, six years, or even maybe going back to 2013. Um, so I, I think as loan docs look like bond docs, bond docs then try to look like you know weaker bond docs. Um, yes. So it, it's just what it is. It's the evolution, uh, especially in a market that's that's got very, very strong demand from bondholders. So... I, I think it, it, it does make calculating these baskets very hard. Um, it does almost make the baskets um, worthless to bondholders for the simple fact that if, if I know that the number is just going to be inflated, then whatever it says from day one, especially with some of the more creative uh, basket language that you've seen, like same day incurrence and things like that, yeah. Um, which, you know, again, makes it difficult. It, it, it is difficult to know. I think the only thing you can do is come up with what do you think is the maximum amount of debt that the company can take before it has to file? 
right? And just assume that that's your basket if it's impossible to calculate what it really is. Um, and I don't see this disclosure from companies changing anytime soon. Um, and uh, unless there is a reason for management to start talking to bondholders, apart from their quarterly or half yearly calls, um, that that's not going to change. There is no way to compel a company in the bond market um, to, to provide information that is, is already, it says, publicly available. To flip the argument on its head, are there any ways in which weak documentation can help investors? In, in this case, it would be particularly distressed investors. Glad you asked that. It's that that's um, it's a it's a thing that we've struggled with for quite a while. I, I think really there are perhaps more than two, but there are two main ways um, to look at this. Number one is through litigation and litigation as a strategy. Uh, it's difficult. It's time consuming. It's expensive, particularly in Europe. It is not mm -hmm. like it is in the US. You can walk into a US courtroom and file a case without having it fully baked. In a lot of European jurisdictions, you're not filing your case unless it's fully baked, which means mm -hmm. you have to have a bondholder group with deep pockets who is willing, who, who thinks it has a very strong case as, a point, as opposed to a case of agitation, which is what you would use in the US mm -hmm. uh, to agitate your way through a process here you have to fully bake it and file it, especially if you're in Germany or, or jurisdictions such as that. Um, and we've gone through some of those in the past and it gets very cumbersome. Um, but I think if you have a very well thought out case, if the documentation is clear enough for bondholders to be able to uh, use leverage against uh, an aggressive company or sponsor, if you also understand the jurisdiction or jurisdictions that you're going to be in. And again, uh, I alluded to the fact that you have to fully bake a lot of these cases um, and you're willing to spend a lot of money doing it, then you might be able to use documentation that is fairly weak, but it has to be weak in your favor, uh, which means that the linkage that we referred to earlier um, has to break down somewhere and you have to have some sort of leverage to stop an aggressive action from being taken against you. It's tricky. And not all of these docs are going to allow for it, but that that I think is one is one way to do it. So you have to understand really where, where are the pressure points in the doc. Number two, though, I think you also have to understand where where the sponsor sits. If the sponsor has the ability to purchase debt, then are they working with you or against you? Um, are they going to show up in a process with a blocking stake in in a in a sub note um, to try to jam a deal through, right against your better you know, against your wishes. And mm. that is, you could say, well, how is that working in your favor? Uh, it's not. But what it is doing is it's telegraphing a lot of things for you. And I think in some cases, um, because a sponsor can purchase debt and because a sponsor can try to control a process, the telegraphing of it, it doesn't help us as distressed investors for, for sure, um, because your ability to team up with the sponsor is you know, it, it, it's 50-50 at best because um, they're already trying to protect their, their equity investment uh, via their debt vehicles. Um, maybe you can get involved, maybe you can't. But the thing is, if you're, if you're looking at it from a different perspective, I think um, it is giving you um, some pretty strong indication as to which way this, uh, this transaction is going to go if the company does tip over. Uh, beyond that, it, it, is, it is difficult. Um, your protections, are, you know, if they're weak enough, you know, you're going to have to wait until you can prove that you have a claim, which means 
um, buying things, uh, buy, buying your, your senior secured note as cheaply as you possibly can and trying to run it through a process there. But it's certainly, it, it ends up being a waiting game. So it is tough. It is tough. Yeah. So on balance, I would take away from what you've said and say that even for a distressed investor, it would be better to have stronger documentation, more protective documentation. Uh, and yeah. yeah. <laughs> in a word, yes. <laughs> right. I mean that, that makes your that makes your job a lot easier. But but again, we're we're not we're not. It's not called distressed because it's easy or straightforward. Right. We we need to find a creative solution to to the distress in order to get the desired outcome that that we want um, as investors. Exactly. So to wrap up, I would really like to hear your thoughts on what the future looks like you know, gazing into your crystal ball and, you know, on the documentation side, as well as the state of the market. Uh, look, it, it's impossible to, to predict the future. I think if you asked me this in, in February, I, I would have probably had the same answer because I, I'm, I'm not a believer that anyone can, can really see into the future and, and tell you where we're going to be. What I can tell you is that investor behavior and psychology will shift and is shifting. Mm. And, and when I say that, all, all, all that means is, you know, do I know where single B spreads are going to be in six months or a year? I have no idea. Um, do I know what people are thinking today? I think I do. Um, and I think what people are, are, are really thinking is I'm going to need better protection and more compensation in order to wade into this market, given the unfortunate environment in which we're operating um, due to what's going on globally with this pandemic. Um, and it is unfortunate because we're, we're seeing mass destruction. Not, not across economies, but across societies in general, um, which is not something anyone can plan for uh, and is not something that anybody wants for sure. Uh, but I think that investors um, in, in managing money for people, whether they're small investors, whether they're endowments, whether they are pension funds or insurance companies um, or the public, um, I, I think are going to want to demand and will demand um, better protections. The, the, uh, you use the word pendulum. Um, and, and, you know, what causes that pendulum to swing back is, is exactly this. Um, when a borrower needs to borrow more, wants to borrow more, um, I, I, I know there's a lot of money chasing yield right now, and it will continue to do so as long as rates are as low as they are. Um, but I think our jobs as investors particularly have been historically, um, and I've been on both sides. I've been on the sell side and the buy side. Um, mm -hmm. Is is to try to protect the capital which you've been given to manage, and and that's really um, and and that's really what you need to do going forward. So the only thing I can say about the future is that, given the environment, given where we've gone, and given where we've gotten to, so where we got to in the in the in the depths of the March sell-off and where we are today, and perhaps where we could get to again, who knows? Um, is that people will bondholders and investors should be looking for better protection and better compensation for lending that money. Um, it just, it feels to me like this is the type of market for that. You are seeing companies coming to market. You saw it in the United States with Carnival Cruise Lines um, yeah. coming with a pretty well-structured deal. Um, you're seeing airlines, you know, sniffing in the market to see if they can get something done. Um, and, and I think investors will demand structures that suit them. Um, much more so than suits the the management team and or the owner of the company. 
Exactly rightly said. And we in Rio can completely get behind investors demanding better protection and better compensation. So we're right behind you on that one, Tim. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, have a chat with us today and good luck for your new venture. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye. Bye.